Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Fire of Burning Coals. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 10, 2016. I never liked it when people asked me what my favorite Christian book is, but when pressed, I've always had the same answer across the years. The little book by Henry Nouwen called In the Name of Jesus. The book was first published back in 1989, but as I look at my worn copy with marginalia from multiple rereadings in different colors of pen and pencil, its radical message still feels fresh. 2016 will mark the 20th anniversary of Nowen's death back in 1996, so it's a good time to honor his story as told in In the Name of Jesus, especially since the book is based on the Gospel of John for this week. Nowen, a Dutch-born Catholic priest, professor, and writer, had reached the highest levels of success as a religious academic, he taught at the University of Notre Dame and then at Yale and Harvard Divinity Schools. But after 25 years in the priesthood, Nowen recounts that as he was turning 50, he began to experience a deep inner threat. He was praying poorly, living in isolation from others, preoccupied with being relevant, and sensing that his success had placed his soul in peril. He writes, I woke up one day with the realization that I was living in a very dark place and that the term burnout was a convenient psychological translation for spiritual death. And so he then made what he describes as the most important spiritual choice of his life. He left Harvard and moved to Toronto where for the last 11 years of his life, he served as the residential priest at Daybreak, a home for people with severe physical and mental disabilities. Living among the weak and suddenly faced with his naked self was the starting point for Nowen to discover what he calls his true identity as a child loved by God. He writes, these broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people force me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and force me to claim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love, regardless of any accomplishments. That decisive break was in fact provoked by John's gospel for this week, which in turn formed the basis of his small book. Two gospel stories guide Nowen's three-part reflection, the story of Jesus' temptations in the desert, and then the story of Peter's reinstatement and called to be a shepherd. Nowen writes, Jesus' first temptation was to be relevant to turn stones into bread. He then challenges our drive for control, efficiency, and relevance. While efficiency and control are great aspirations of our society, the loneliness, broken relationships, boredom, 
feelings of emptiness and depression, and a deep sense of uselessness, all these fill the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. As a counterpart to relevance, Nowen proposes that future leaders will be those who dare to claim their irrelevance and enter into solidarity with the suffering majority, bringing the light of Jesus to them as one of them. Jesus didn't ask Peter's successor, Peter, his successor, who is going to take you seriously? What are your metrics? Or when will you deliver some results? Instead, in the Gospel of John this week, Jesus asked not once, but three times, Do you love me? Jesus' second temptation was to do something spectacular, something worthy of hits, likes, tweets, and more followers. The devil goads Jesus at the top of the temple. Since you are God's son, jump. Angels will catch you so that you won't so much as stub your toe on a stone. With bestsellers like Lean In, the proliferation of TED Talks, hours of reality TV, personal branding is the new norm. It's hard to feel in if you're not pursuing audience and applause. But, says Nowen, Jesus didn't come to be a stuntman. He proposes a new kind of leadership modeled on the servant leader Jesus rather than power games. Peter will be a shepherd who night and day nourishes, gathers, rescues, restores, and needs the community as much as it needs him. Alan concludes with Jesus' last temptation, the temptation of power. He observes that one of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political, military, economic, moral, and spiritual. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. Maybe it's because it seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life, says Nowen. Which brings him to the gospel for this week. Dirty, wet, and tired from fishing all night and catching nothing, the disciples nonetheless followed Jesus' command to recast their nets one more time. The result was the miraculous catch of 153 fish. That number looks suspiciously symbolic, but there's zero scholarly agreement about what that might be. After hauling their fish to shore, they were met by Jesus, and we read in chapter 21, verse 9, a fire of burning coals. Jesus greeted them with welcoming words. Come and have breakfast. When breakfast was over, and as they warmed themselves before the crackling fire, Jesus asked Peter not once, but three times, Peter, do you really love me? Three times Peter replied, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then three times Jesus responded, Feed my sheep. 
This is a masterful literary stroke by John to connect two otherwise disparate stories. John says that, quote, Peter was hurt, end quote, by Jesus' query. That's because the triple query by Jesus evoked a painful memory of a triple denial by Peter. Who doesn't have powerful memories about standing around a fire and staring into the flames? The last time that Peter stood around a campfire was just a few days earlier, during the arrest of Jesus, when he denied three times that he even knew Jesus. In that incident, in John 18, verse 18, John describes how, quote, it was cold and the servants and officials stood around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself, says John. And so both campfire conversations about faithfulness to Jesus were painful in the extreme. But Jesus reinstates Peter three times with the words, feed my sheep. And despite his past failures, he went on to become the movement's leader. But not without a zinger of a postscript in chapter 21, verse 18. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This is Jesus' last word on leadership with Peter before commanding him to follow me. He tells Peter that he must be willing to be led where he would rather not go, to a place where power is abandoned in favor of love in a space where a leader can critically discern where God is leading. This triple play query between Peter and Jesus, says Nowen, is an invitation to vulnerability and downward mobility. He writes, they are the words that made it possible for me to move from Harvard to Toronto. They touch the core of Christian leadership and are spoken to offer us ever and again new ways to let go of power and follow the humble way of Jesus. For books this week, I review a tiny little volume by Oliver Sacks. It's called Gratitude. New York, Knopf, 2016, this little book is just 45 pages. The four chapters, and I use quotation marks, that comprise this tiny book originated as essays in the New York Times that Oliver Sacks wrote in the last two years of his life. Sacks, who died in August of 2015 from cancer, spent the better part of 50 years as a neurologist and best-selling author of books that were based on the clinical histories of his patients. He was famous for his unusual degree of empathy, not to mention scientific curiosity, 
for his patients and how they have been mistreated or marginalized because of their unusual diseases. And so, in his many books, he told their stories. You might want to see, for example, my own reviews of his book, The Mind's Eye, or his other book, Music Ophelia, and his memoir, On the Move, that was completed just before he died. The little article, Mercury, was published in July of 2013 on the occasion of his 80th birthday, 18 months before he learned that his rare form of eye cancer had metastasized. One month after learning that he had multiple metastases in the liver and that he was suddenly face-to-face with dying, he wrote the article, My Own Life. He says, I feel a sudden clear focus and perspective. There is no time for anything inessential. Then, about three months before he died, in the summer of 2015, while he was still in fairly good health, he wrote, My Periodic Table. The last essay, Sabbath, appeared just two weeks before he died. There he reflects on his ambivalent feelings about his Jewish heritage and about what is meant by living a good and worthwhile life. What we have here is a gifted writer who lived a colorful life, reflecting on the pleasures and pains of old age, the perspective of time, the many gifts and sorrows of life, and the specter of death that he faced with candor and grace. He writes, I cannot pretend I am without fear, but my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have been given much, and I have given something in return. Above all, I have been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet, and that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. The, the neurologist Oliver Sacks, a posthumous book, Gratitude, from the year 2016. For films this week, I review a title called The Black Panthers, Vanguards of the Revolution, from 2016. This PBS documentary was released to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the founding of what was originally called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland. As the name implies, the Black Panther Party was founded to monitor police behavior in order to stop its brutality. Although its later 10-point platform was much broader and included housing, education, employment, incarceration, and so on, along with its famous free medical clinics and food programs. Written, produced, and directed by Stanley Nelson, the film has no single narrative, but instead allows the participants in the movement, along with a few historians, to share their memories and perspectives. As you would expect, the story revolves around the three charismatic leaders, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and Eldridge Cleaver, and the violent responses to the Black Panthers by police, 
and especially the federal government. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover once called the Panthers the greatest threat to the internal security of the country and carried out extensive programs of infiltration, informants, surveillance, and even assassination. Whether mythologized by supporters or misunderstood by detractors, the Black Panther Party was one of the most important social movements in American history. I watched this film on the PBS website. The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. And finally, for poetry, we posted a poem to celebrate our Easter faith. It's by Denise Levertov. It's called Icon, the Harrowing of Hell. Down through the tomb's inward arch, he has shouldered out into limbo to gather them, dazed from dreamless slumber, the merciful dead, the prophets, the innocents just his own age, and those outnumbered others waiting here unaware in an endless void he is ending now, stooping to tug at their hands to pull them from their sarcophagi, dazzled, almost unwilling. Didymus, neighbor in death, Golgotha dust still streaked on the dried sweat of his body. No one had washed and anointed is here. For sequence is not known in limbo. The promise, given from cross to cross at noon, arches beyond sunset and dawn. All these he will swiftly lead to the paradise road. They are safe. That done, there must take place that struggle no human presumes to picture. Living, dying, descending to rescue the just from shadow, where lesser travails than this. To break through earth and stone of the faithless world back to the cold sepulchre, tear-stained, stifling shroud, to break from them back into breath and heartbeat and walk the world again, closed into days and weeks again, wounds of his anguish open, and spirit streaming through every cell of flesh so that if mortal sight could bear to perceive it, it would be seen his mortal flesh was lit from within and aching for home. He must return first in divine patience, and know hunger again, and give to humble friends the joy of giving him food, fish in a honeycomb. Denise Levertov, Icon, The Harrowing of Hell. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 10th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.